My name is Zach. For those of you that don't know me, I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch. I want to welcome you to church this morning. Uh, We are very honored that you are with us as we worship God and come together as the people of God in the presence of God. Uh, We've been learning about work and how the way of Jesus influences, inspires, and informs the work of our hands. We've seen that we spend 90,000 hours of our lives at work. That doesn't include the school on the front end or along the way uh, to help us in our jobs. So a significant portion of your life and mine is spent at work. And yet we've seen that a vast majority of Americans, 90% of us, feel very little passion, very little purpose, very little significance when it comes to the jobs that we spend so much time at. And that's a big problem, right? We're spending our lives on things that we're like, why am I doing this? When we look to Jesus, though, we see something different, that Jesus speaks into the work of our hands. Because when we look at Jesus, he tells us that you matter to God. That you matter to God, and not just that you matter to God, but that all people matter to God. And because you matter to God, God has given you and has for everyone work that matters. You have a calling on your life to cultivate. You have work that matters because you matter to God. So God has given you work that matters. We've seen that in our work, our work is not primarily to make us great. Our work and our gifts are not primarily about, you know, building the kingdom of me. They're not primarily about making me great, but they're primarily about making others great. That it's not about me and mine, it's about him and them. And when we live and when we approach our work and our gifts, if it's about me, if I'm trying to to build this career for me because I want to be there, right? No life is there. Life dries up in that environment. Remember, I showed you the grapes. This is the grape of your life. If you live with you just as the center point of everything, you just dry up like a raisin. But if we realize it's about him and it's about them, Then we step into a place where life flows and our little grape turns into a rich glass of wine. Your life turning into something rich and important because you've given it away to him and to others. Uh, And we learned four questions that help us reframe the way that we think about our work. And I was really encouraged that individual in our church who leads an organization uh, here in town said that they took all their employees through the four questions because they wanted everyone to have a sense of purpose at work. That's awesome. I would encourage you to take those questions and use them. And I'm going to give you a tool today or the beginning of a tool today that I think will be a similar type resource that you'll want to hold on to, you'll want to talk to your kids about, you'll want to pass on because it's so powerful when it comes to our work. The topic that we're going to be speaking about is how do you find the work that you're made for? How do you find the work that you're meant for? I believe that uh, all people, really, whether they're religious or irreligious, have a longing to fulfill their purpose, long to have meaning for their lives. And we normally define it relationally. I want to find the one or, or that special someone, my soulmate, I want to find them. Or I want to find my tribe or my people or where I belong. Like we long for that. And we long to find the work that we just feel like, man, this is what I was put on the planet to do. But how in the world do we find that? 
how in the world do you find, how in the world do I find the work that we're meant for? Because we believe, you know, if you think, man, if I could just find the people that I'm meant for and if I could find the person that I'm meant for, I would experience life to the full. So we're going to talk about, well, how in the world do we get there? How do I find the work that I am meant for? Before we jump into that, each week we've been hearing a testimony from someone in our church about how their faith and relationship with Christ influences and inspires the work of their hands. And so I want to invite Grace Song to come on up. Come on, Grace. You have some fans. Yeah. Okay. Grace, tell us what you do for, uh, what's your job? Okay. So I work in the hospital and my skill set is in nursing. Awesome. And do you work with old people, young people? Yeah. What kind of people? So I work with adults right now um, and it's, it's a progressive care unit, which is essentially a step down ICU setting. Yeah. Okay. And how long have you worked there? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. Awesome. So tell us, uh, that's a, Nursing, I, I would think, could be a pretty intense environment. Mm-hmm. So tell us how your, your relationship with Christ, how Jesus influences kind of your 9 to 5 or 7 to 3 or whatever the 12-hour the shift is, job. Shift, yeah. So actually, I, I didn't want to be a nurse. Okay. Um, and that's kind of where this journey began. Um, when I said yes to nursing, it took a lot of energy and uh, it was hard. It was really hard for me. And so I remember walking into a shift, you never know what, what you're going to get, like Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's his name. Life is like a box of chocolates. Anyways, so, I, and, and that's, that for me was a lot of anxiety. I hate surprises. I don't, mm. I love to know what's coming and to have, to walk into a shift where people's lives are like practically in your hands, that was really, um, um, it, it brought a lot of anxiety, right? Um, and so I think I'm just going to like air out my laundry on stage sure. and just let you guys in. You know, I went on a mission trip and I would actively try to spend time with Jesus before because it's like, man, I have to, I'm doing eternal work. You know, I got I to gotta fill myself up with eternal values to give out to the people. But, but that's what we do in our day-to-day life. Mm. And I think that's, that's what caused me to wake up, or try to at least, and really fill myself up with things that were going to still, I'm still doing eternal work. So mm. work to me is wow. no longer work. It's, it's you're walking into your field. So when you wake wow. up in the morning, you're walking into your field, whether, whether wow. you're spending time with kids or adults or a board of trustees or I don't know, what else, whatever it is. So that's, that's, kind that's of what that looks like. That's awesome. So tell us, in the first service, you told us a story about how you like when you're faced with situations, how you really rely on the Lord, even for insight and in how to deal with patience. Right. Why don't you share that story? That's yeah. Really okay. Cool. cool. So, uh, love the night shift. Work, work night shift. It's great. You guys should join me sometime if you want. <laughs> um, and uh, there. So every morning at around three, four o'clock, we draw labs, right, to have it available for the physicians to look at. Um, so we had this one patient, um, really sick guy, I can go into all the physiological details as to why, what was wrong with him, but essentially he was bruised from his wrist up, up, up here and you can't find a vein. And so the lab tech is like, hey Grace, like I really need your help, I can't, I can't find his vein, I tried warming him up, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that, so... <laughs> Um, anyway, so I, I brought, my, brought in my friend Mark, um, excellent nurse, and I'm like, hey, Mark, I really need your help. And uh, he, he helps me, and, and during that process, we find a vein, but his blood is really, really thick. And so it's, it's a slow process of getting, drawing out blood. But 
in that moment, I'm like, man, Lord, like, what can I do? And I just start praying in tongues. And I don't realize that I'm not praying internally. <laughs> um, and so, and I, I guess whatever. So we end up drawing, you know, four, four tubes of blood, which is like amazing for this guy. And, um, and afterwards, you know, debriefing with my, with, with Mark, he's like, man, yeah, like that man, yeah, Grace was like chanting spells and, and like, it, I don't know what she was doing, but it, it, it worked. And I don't know, it just kept mumbling and talking about it. So it just, it was just really encouraging that like, you know, something silly as that, uh, no shame, uh, bringing that. I don't know. There you go. Yeah. Holy Spirit giving you wisdom and breakthrough. Yeah. I bet the guy who's having the blood drawn was thankful. Somebody yeah. knew the Lord. Um, so tell us, what advice would you have? Because, you know, we work in lots of different fields. Maybe share one thought from something you've learned that could encourage or inspire someone here related to work and our faith in Christ. Yeah, that's good. Um, honestly, guys, I have nothing to say. You guys are already doing it. Just mm. keep doing what you're doing, especially when it's really hard and it doesn't feel great and you're discouraged or you're unsure, especially when you're unsure. You are doing exactly what you need to be doing. And I think that's the piece that... Um, it's so special because we have a relationship with the creator of work and creator wow. of relationship. And we are called to do those things wow. in our day-to-day -day life. So when you wake up in the morning feeling like Jesus, mm. you just say yes and you enter into your field. So that's it. Awesome. You did great. Give her a hand. If you'll hand that to Donnie. Yeah, Each of those stories, again, is not meant to be a template that you feel like you need to fit into, but it's meant to be an inspiration that you might get one thing that could help you this week uh, in your job. So we're going to be in Luke 19 today as we address this question of how do I find the work that I was made for, 19 verse 11. Uh, if, you'll reach, uh, if you don't have a Bible, they're underneath the seat rack in front of you. You can get your device out, your phone, your tablet, whatever it may be. You can look on with a friend as well. We're going to be in Luke 19 starting in verse 11 and go through verse 25. And what we're going to look at is, is a parable or a teaching of Jesus that the people of Jesus for hundreds of years have looked to in order to understand more how do we find the work that we're made for. And I want to introduce a term to you that's probably new, but I think it's a great term to describe what we're talking about uh, that this parable highlights for us, and that's how do you find your anointed fit? And when I say anointed fit, how do you find the job or the work or whatever it may be that this is like, man, this is what God has called me to. This is their divine sense of calling. That's the anointing part. And then the fit part is how does this fit with who I am? Because you want to find that place, that sweet spot, if you will, where your role and your soul line up where your purpose and your person seem to come together, that place of your anointed fit. And the church has used this parable, has looked to this parable that we're going to read for hundreds of years, and people have drawn insights over centuries of how this speaks into our nine-to-five jobs. So how do we find our anointed fit? How do you find the work that you're made for? Let's read through the parable together, Luke 19, verse 11, or I'll read it and you can follow along uh, as we read. Um, as they heard these things, being the disciples, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. 
Okay, so the setting is Jesus has been on this long road trip headed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where he's crucified. Jerusalem is where he's raised from the dead. He is headed that way, right? And his disciples think, his followers think that when he goes into Jerusalem, it's going to be like game over. Like Super Mario Brothers, you're going to defeat Bowser. Princess Toadstool is going to come out. Fireworks everywhere. This is it, right? That's what they're hoping for. That's what they're thinking is going to happen. Jesus himself knows the response is going to be very, very different than what the expectation of his disciples are. And his disciples are thinking the kingdom of God is about to come in its full manifestation on earth. And we're going to be on the winning team. And this is exciting. And Jesus knows that as he walks in, yes, the kingdom of God is going to come. But he's going to be taken. He's going to be seized. He's going to be tried, beaten, crucified, and killed. And he's going to be raised from the dead. And the fullness of his kingdom, the, the, the end, will not come for a long time. It will be uh, inaugurated. It will begin. But the ending will happen much, much later. And so he's trying to help his disciples. He's going to tell them a story that they probably were clueless when they first heard, but that he was hoping would register in their hearts for uh, after the crucifixion and the resurrection when they're wrestling with the question, well, what do we do with our lives between here and heaven? We know in following Jesus, we know that he, we're going to heaven with him, right? But what do we do with our lives in the meantime between here and heaven? How do we find the work that we're made for? So that's what he's trying to explain to them. And there's a number of things going on in this parable, uh, different tangential points. I don't have time to go into all of them today if we're going to stay on topic related to work. So I'll point those out to you as we go, just what I don't have time to go into because I want to focus in on what we need to hear related to work. So Jesus tells him a parable, uh, and he says this, A noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then he returns. Mm. And then return. Verse 13, Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, when the nobleman returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he, the master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant, because you have been faithful uh, in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And the master said to him, you are going to be over five cities. And then another came and said, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, the master said. You wicked servant, you knew uh, that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at the time of my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, that guy already has ten minas. And the master says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Okay, so you've got this kingdom, the nobleman, kingdom being taken, people not wanting him to take the kingdom. You've got he's taking it anyway. You've got servants that he leaves behind that he gives money to, and they go and invest. Like There's just so much going on in this parable, okay? So what I'd like to do is stay focused on the servants, and, and we could talk about the kingdom development at another time. We've covered that many times in the Gospel of Luke, but I want to stay focused on the servants, right? So what's going on here? The master, the nobleman, Jesus telling the story, and I would encourage you to, when you see that nobleman, that you think, this is Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying. He's that character, right? He, he's that person. This is how the story connects to him. He's the nobleman, and his servants, his disciples, are the servants, right? His followers, his people, and it says that he's going to take a kingdom, and he calls his servants to himself, and he, he, he gives them money, and he puts money in their hands. One mina is a weight of money, a measure of money that was about four months' worth of work. So imagine your boss calls you in tomorrow and says, hey, I'm going away on some business. Here's four months' worth of your salary. I want you to go do something with it. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, they tell the same parable. Matthew tells the same parable. He doesn't use the monetary measure of minas. He uses talents. And, and a mina is somewhat, it's four months, that's some money. But a, but a talent is 20 years worth of salary. Wow. That the master entrusts to a steward, entrusts to a servant. Right? And he tells them to go and to uh, do business and to make increase and to invest this. And so we see a master investing in servants, and the servants go off and they invest, right? And some of them come back and they've got a large return. That one guy had 10 minas that the investment brought. Another one had five. And another one he didn't really do anything with what he had been given, and when we read this story, every single person, you read it and you're like, man, I would like to be that person that had one mina and turned it into 10. That would be amazing, that my life would be spent in such a way that it was just so fruitful. We all want to be the 10 mina person, right? And I want to point out to you how I believe that we all can have that kind of return on our life, that we all can step into our anointed fit from uh, this parable. So the first thing that I want you to know, and I'm going to give you over the course of the coming weeks, I'm going to give you five C's that I believe will help you find your anointed fit. Five C's. We're going to have time to cover one of them today. We'll cover the rest. Hopefully next week I'm going to invite you just to say, hey, this is important enough that I want to make sure that I'm here this week, next week, and the following week as we kind of unpack your anointed fit. So I'm going to give you five C's, and then week three I'm going to give you a framework, okay? So if we can pull those C's up, five C's toward your anointed fit, calling, character, capacity, competency, and chemistry. I encourage you to write those down. Just for a short definition, calling is your mission and your gifting, and that's what we're going to focus in on today. But I believe these five C's will help you as you think about your life, find the work, that you are made for. So let's start with calling. If you look in the first portion of the passage, uh, in verse 13, it says that the master called 10 of his servants to himself. He called them. 
And so make sure that we see what's going on in this story. Uh, This is not some different people had some business ideas that they had a proof of concept and some initial sales. And they're like, hey, uh, I've got this idea for a popsicle company and I've already sold them at the farmer's market and people like them. And so I'd love for you to invest $20,000 to help me get my popsicle business going. It's not that. That, that. That's Shark Tank and that's cool. I like Shark Tank. But I just want to make sure that you see that's not what's going on here. It's not that the servants are coming to the master with a plan, with an idea, with something that they're asking him to put his resources in. No, the master is calling them to himself. This begins in the heart of the master, not the mind of the servants. The master calls them. And believers have seen this idea of calling. We see it throughout Scripture that our God is a God who calls people. That he calls people into relationship with him. He calls people into relationship with others. He calls people into purpose. This idea of calling is something that helps us find, okay, this is what I'm meant for. These servants, the one who invested his talent and reaped tenfold and then got put in charge of ten cities, right? It started with knowing his calling. It started with the master's voice speaking his purpose and his mission. And not only did the master say, go and do business, but the master then took resource and put it in his hands. He gave him gifting. It was not, hey, here's a mission you need to go do. Good luck getting there. It was, no, here's a mission, and I'm going to give you what you need to get started, right? The calling was around mission, and it was around gifting. And that's where the beginning of this life well-lived began. This anointed fit began for this servant. The calling of God. The calling of God. And so as we start to think about the work that we're made for, what's your calling. What has God called you to, right? We find our calling by looking at our creator. We find our our, our mission by looking at our designer. What has God called you to? And the church has wrestled with this idea, well, what has God called us to? What, what What does that actually look like? Wrestled with it. Hundreds of years. So I want to take you through a, a history lesson real quick that will help you understand the idea of calling and help us all honestly make sense of our own lives when we start talking about this idea. So the early church, first 300 years of the church, lived under persecution, right? Roman Empire, Christianity was a minority faith. There weren't many people that were believers. Uh, they were persecuted. It was not cool to be a Christian. Uh, that was how it was. And in that season of pressure and pressing and persecution, Christians looked to the face of Jesus and looked at what Jesus said were the most important things about life. And I want to take you to that scripture. It's Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 22, verse 36. Words of Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So Christians are being persecuted. They don't have much mobility. They don't have much influence or power. And they're looking to the face of Jesus. And they're like, regardless of how our masters treat us, regardless of what the Romans do to us, we can love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we can love our neighbor 
as ourselves. And so the early church was known for their love for one another. They loved one another so deeply that it spilled over to the poor, to the sick, to the orphan, to the outcast, and it transformed the Roman Empire. It actually upended the Roman Empire, not through a great strategy, a great plan, a great marketing message, but through love, through people loving God and loving one another. They transformed their world. That was their understanding of calling, that God has called us to love him and to love people. Well, in around 300 or so, Constantine, who is the emperor of Rome, has a dream, and this is really important when you wanna understand the evolution of Christianity. He has a dream, and in the dream, he sees this sign of a cross, and he hears a voice saying, in this sign, you know, you will conquer. So he wakes up, and he's like, okay, I know exactly what this means. He said, I'm gonna become a Christian, Every person in the Roman Empire is going to become a Christian right now. And then we're going to put the cross on the front of our shields and we're going to go forth and we're going to continue conquering the world. That's how he interpreted it. So in that moment, something significant happened. You went as a Christian from being, you knew some Christians, you weren't that popular, to almost in an instant, now everyone is a Christian, regardless of what they believe. Regardless of what their background is, regardless of their personal experience, regardless of if they really actually know even who Jesus is, to be a Roman is now to be a Christian. So let's change out the signs on our building, the signs on our shield, and let's go forth and let's conquer. Everyone in a moment was now labeled a Christian, but you can imagine that that was only uh, skin deep, if that. And so the church really struggled in this time where now it was like everyone was a Christian because now every single person you knew for hundreds of miles was a Christian. So what, were the, what was the church supposed to do? How were they supposed to live their lives? Like life made sense when they were being persecuted and pressured and they could focus in on loving God and loving people and they were seeing people come to know Jesus. Life made sense. But now everybody is a Christian, so their world is just shaken. They're trying to figure it out. They're saying they're Christian, but they're not really following Jesus. What in the world is going on? And so you'll read about this. People that were sincere in their faith, they're wrestling with this problem. They don't know what to do. And so they decide to retreat from society. They decide to pull back to go off into the desert, to go off into the wilderness, to go off into these little communes of people who wanted to give themselves to fasting, to prayer, to silence, to solitude. And so it came to be believed that if you were really serious about Jesus, what your calling looked like was to go off away from everyone else, to fast, to pray, to contemplate, and and to do that. And that the people that remained, kind of the rest of us, you know, with, with normal jobs and normal lives, well, tough luck for you. I want to read you a quote from Eusebius of Caesarea. He was a leader in the church around this time, and he articulates kind of this division or distinction that arose uh, in those years in that generation. And he argued that there were two ways of life. There was the perfect way, and there was the permitted way the perfect way and the permitted way. Other theologians said there was the contemplative life and the active life. There were two very different, distinct ways of life. The perfect way was a life that was pulled back from the world 
and was devoted to contemplation, to prayer, to seeking God. It was reserved for priests, for monks, and nuns. The permitted life, which was kind of the second-rate life, it was okay, but, but, but not this. The permitted life was for people who did jobs like farming, governing, soldiering, trading, raising families, etc. Those are the people who have a permitted life, but not the perfect way. He called the, the permitted life a second grade of piety. So in, those, in that time, calling shifted to say, man, what, what it really looks like to follow Jesus is to pull back from everything, just to go be alone, to fast, pray, contemplate, and not really engage with the world. So what this did for people following Jesus was it gave them a vision that, okay, the thing that's important is this perfect life over here, but my job, what, what I spend my time at, the place that I work, my family, gosh, that's just kind of second, second rate, second fiddle. You know, we're playing t-ball while they're playing in the major leagues. And you, if you're really serious about Jesus, you're going to go do this. And depending on what church tradition you grew up in or what your background is, you might uh, be familiar with kind of this way of thinking. And so it, for people with their jobs, they didn't see any way that Jesus connected with the work that they were doing. Because if you were really into Jesus, you were over here in the wilderness. So now my job, what is the real purpose of it, right? And there became this division within the church. And it marked the way that Christians thought about work and calling for hundreds of years. Well, come to the 1500s, and Martin Luther comes on the scene with the other reformers, right? And they're bringing reformation to the church, and they're saying salvation is not by works, but it's by grace, through faith, right? You've probably heard that. Another thing that they're saying, which was so interesting, that was part of the message that they wanted to communicate, was that this breakdown between kind of the perfect life and the permitted life, between kind of this uh, first-rate Christianity and second-rate Christianity, between the sacred and the secular, was an artificial distinction. That it was a man-made kind of barrier or way of thinking, but that it wasn't what we see when we look at Jesus. They took us back to the face of Jesus and back to the idea that we all have a calling to love God and to love people. And so this transformed the way their followers thought about work. Let's read a quote from Martin Luther. The works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God, from whom the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. Understand what he's saying there. So significant. He's saying, hey, the, the prayers, the fasting, the work of the priest, no matter how arduous it may be, that, that, that can be good. But it's not necessarily inherently better than the person who's just cleaning a bedroom because they're a servant. He said, what matters is not the exterior appearance. What matters is underneath. What's the motivation in the heart? Do they have faith towards God? Are they doing it out of a sense of calling to love God and to love people? That's what matters. That's what's important. And so this idea began to restore a vision for calling and transform the way Christians went about their work. 
You might have heard of the Protestant work ethic. It comes out of this idea. So now this wave of creativity and passion and purpose from people who genuinely love Jesus is now saying that my work that I do, my job, it's important to God. It's a place for me to live out my calling. And it unlocked creativity really throughout the Western uh, Hemisphere. Well, fast forward a couple hundred years, and we move kind of into industrialization, if you can put that picture up. And in that time period, right, starting then, and it continues on, at least in the United States, we've tried to secularize society. And I don't say that with an edge or anything. I'm just trying to give you history. We've tried to say, hey, you can have a belief in God. Cool. Keep it in your private life. Let it be personal comfort when times are hard for you. That's fine. But out here in the public life, in your school, in your job, in your neighborhood, in the government, well, that's a different world. We've got our, our private world where God can be, and then out here, we're secularizing. We, want, we don't want it to be formed by any particular vision of God or anything like that. And, and when that happened, it changed again the way people thought about work. Because it cut off, again, this idea that our work was a place that our calling to love God and to love people could be lived out. We said we don't want to start with, with God. We actually want to start with this community that we're trying to build. And so instead of going to God for my calling, people began to look at their work as their calling. I want to read to you from Oz Guinness, who wrote an incredible book on calling, and he said this about this period. He said, slowly, such words as work, trade, employment, and occupation came to be used interchangeably with calling and vocation. As this happened, the guidelines for calling shifted. Instead of being directed by the commands of God, they were seen as directed by duties and roles in society. Eventually, there came the day when faith and calling were separated completely. The original demand that each Christian should have a calling was boiled down to the demand that each citizen should have a job. So over time, it evolved and went into probably the way that you and I think of and use the word calling. We, we say, this is my job. This is the work that I do. We, we, we've let our calling become our nine to fives. And, and as we do that, as we've done that, we start looking to our jobs to give us our purpose, to give us our mission, to give us our giftings, right? And it just doesn't work that way. I would argue that's why so many people feel so dissatisfied at their jobs, so passionless, so purposeless, because we're looking in the wrong place for the thing that's meant to be our calling. Your calling, please hear me, is not your job. Your calling is much bigger than your job. Your calling is much more than where you spend your nine to five, your late night shift, your seven to three, whatever you're doing right now. Your calling is much bigger than that. When we return and we look to the face of Jesus, like these servants come into their master and we hear the master's voice, he's not saying, my call is for you to be a teacher. What's he saying? He's saying, my call on your life is that you would spend your life loving me and you would spend your life loving people. That's your calling. 
And this is so important, church, because when we confuse where our calling comes from and we look at our work as our calling, we get twisted real fast. Because what happens when your job changes? What happens when you get fired? What happens when your company folds? What happens when it's like, man, I'm so bored at my job, but I thought this was my calling and now it's not. What am I going to do? Right? You just drift in the wind. Thank you. But if your calling is to love God and to love people, then you start to realize the job that I have, the relationships that I have, these are canvases on which to live out the master's calling on my life and paint a picture of the glory of God. And as time, your assignment might change. You might be a teacher for a time, and then now you're something else. You might start in one line of work, and now you move to something else. Your canvas changes, your assignment changes, but your calling doesn't change. Whatever you're doing, you have a call to love God and to love people. And if you'll realize that and you let that inform you, then you start seeing the different canvases of your life as a place to express the glory of God. And we start finding the work that we're made for. We start finding your anointed fit. And I want to tell you a story uh, of what this looks like uh, worked out that I just thought was so inspiring this week. If you'll put that picture of the reaper up there, this is known as the McCormick Reaper or the McCormick Harvesting Machine. And this was an invention, an American invention. It was the first time that grain or, or, or harvest or agriculture went from being harvested by hand, like picking individually or, or harvesting hand by hand, to being harvested through like machinery and horsepower, and it, it made the work of harvesting so much easier. I mean, just think about it. If your life had been spent, month, days, months, years of your life had been spent just picking grains of corn one by one by one by one, and now there was a development of this harvester that would allow it to happen at such a great, a more rapid pace. It significantly transformed America significantly transformed the way we do farming. It significantly ended up transforming the way the world does farming, the McCormick harvesting machine. The impact of this machine meant a number of things. Number one, uh, it eliminated for many the fear of famine. Human history had been dominated by famines or fear of famines for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And when the harvester was released, what it allowed farmers to do was to plant bigger fields so they could harvest more, and it eliminated for many the fear of famine. It eliminated for many the drudgery of, man, I've got to spend 12 hours a day for this many months of my year, or for this many li uh, years of my life, just working in the field. It freed up resource, and in its wake, it released hundreds of other inventions from people who now had free time not to just spend on their farming, but to do other things. This made the quality of life better for the poor. It made their work easier. It made their work more prosperous. Farmers save money through the development of the reaper. Significant invention. I mean, like, why are we talking about this, Zach? 
Um, well, what you don't know about Cyrus is that he uh, was a sincere person of faith. He loved Jesus. And coming up, he was in a family that had some means, and he was trained as a blacksmith, and he saw uh, people, uh, poor people, laboring in the fields, this backbreaking work, month after month, year after year. And he knew from his calling, from knowing that Jesus had called him to love God and to love people, that love people, he was like, man, I think I could do something about this to tangibly love the poor in my community. So he began as a blacksmith to try and build uh, this reaper out of a desire to love his neighbor, out of a desire to help the poor around him. And he said, this is so cool, he said that part of what he viewed, his mission, part of the outworking on his life of loving God and loving people, what was ending hunger was ending hunger. And so he took what was in his hands, he took what he knew how to do, and out of the place of his calling, right, he created this invention that really transformed the lives of so many. The newspapers said about him that McCormick conquers nature to the benign end of civilization, meaning he harvests the power of nature to make the world a better place, and that he brings bread to the mouths of the poor. The fruit of his work that came from his calling in Christ transformed the world. You and I, we have the same calling as Cyrus McCormick. You have a calling on your life. And I don't know if the outworking, if the canvas, if you will, is going to be world transformation from your life. It might be. But if you and I tap into this, I bet at the least your office is transformed. I bet maybe even at a more baseline level than that, maybe your office isn't transformed, but maybe you're transformed. And we go into our jobs with a greater sense of vision and purpose that we have a calling from our master. And that helps us find our anointed fit, the work that we're made for. So I want to pray with you as we, as we close about this because it's such an important issue. And I just want to invite everyone to bow your heads for a moment and just pastorally I want to lead you in a time of prayer because what I realize for these servants here in the text that we looked at and for people like Cyrus McCormick is what it took for them to get into the work that God had for them, it took surrender. Like the servants, I'm sure they had other plans. I'm sure they had other ideas. I'm sure they had other things they could have done. And it took them saying no to those things, emptying what's in their hands in order to lay hold of what the master had for them. It took surrender. And for us to find the work that is our anointed fit, it's going to take surrender. It's going to take us letting go of just the different things that we're holding on to. You might be in your job because it pays well. You might be in your job because it's what your family told you to do. You might be in your job because you just felt like you were good at it. But we've never taken time just to look to our maker and our creator and ask him. Say, I want to follow your purpose for my life. I want to receive my calling from you. And you don't have to go off into a field and just hope for a shooting star to know your calling. It's simple. It's love God and love people. 
That's your calling. But to lay hold of that, it's going to take surrender. So I want to invite you into a time of surrender. You may be here and you say, well, you know, I I don't even know that I know Jesus. Um, I'm here at church. Maybe you've been in church, but you realize as we talk about this, you're like, man, my point of surrender is surrendering to Jesus, to, to committing to follow him. That's where it starts. And you might realize, look around, you realize the world is a broken place. You realize that people are broken. And at the same time, as you see brokenness, you also see beauty. You also see incredible goodness. And it's hard to reconcile the two. Well, Jesus teaches us that, yes, the world is broken, but it was not always so, and it will not always be so. That God created the world, and he created it perfect. That he created it with love and harmony and goodness and purpose. But that mankind, that we turn from God, we said, we don't want you to be our king. We don't want you to be our creator. We want to do life on our own terms. And as we took life into our own hands and we began to call the shots, the results from that is the brokenness that you see in the world around us. But God loved us so much that he came to redeem us out of the brokenness and to bring us back to his perfect design. And he came in Jesus. And when Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross, he made a way for your brokenness and mine, your sin and mine to be forgiven and washed clean. And when he rose again, he invited us into new life. So it starts with surrendering your sin, surrendering your pride, surrendering that you've said, I'm the one that's in charge of my life, surrendering it to him. And coming back to him being your leader, that's the place to start. And if that's you, if you've never made Jesus Lord, and again, I'd love for everyone to have their head bowed and eyes closed. If you've never said, Jesus, you're the one uh, that I want to follow, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Uh, This might be a first time for you. You might be coming back back to church for the first time in a long time. Just want to give you with every head bowed, every eye closed, an opportunity to raise your hand. I want to pray with you. All right, if you would join with me in this prayer, uh, church, if your hands were raised, whoever, let's just pray this together. Jesus, you're awesome. Jesus, you're good. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for making me new. I commit to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. For the church, I want to speak to you as the communion team comes forward. We're going to take communion together. And as the worship team leads us, I want to encourage you to to take time to surrender again to the Lord. To surrender your plans and your thoughts and your ideas and all of those things. And just come back again to the feet and to the face of Jesus. And receive his calling on your life to love God and to love people. And as you do that, as you surrender, I want to invite you to come forward as you take up communion. It just be a, a prophetic act of you receiving your calling from God.